KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is part three of a KYW News Radio in-depth series called Facts Over Fear, presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie. We're moving into yet another winter with COVID. How does Omicron change the next few months? How are healthcare workers doing nearly two years after the start of this pandemic? And have we learned enough from this to be prepared for the next big health emergency? Dr. Perry Halkidis is Dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health. Dr. Halkidis, thank you so much for joining us. Cases are rising again at an alarming rate in Philly. New cases doubled in the two weeks following Thanksgiving. Hospitalizations went up 50%. In New Jersey, hospitalizations went up 81% over that same period. And across Pennsylvania, many hospitals are reporting ER wait times of 10 to 20 hours. How is it that we find ourselves in this place yet again? Right. So, hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. First of all, I appreciate it. Um, Let me say that the reason that this is happening is because we have a disease that is now endemic to our population. Any disease that is endemic to population is going to have ebbs and flows. And so why this is happening again is because we have this false sense that somehow this disease has been eradicated, which it has not. And it continues to percolate, just like flu percolates, just like HIV percolates. And you have these pockets of outbreaks that are going to continue to exist until such a time, until the disease is eradicated. The reason we don't have polio anymore is because it's eradicated. But we're not at that point in this disease. And so you're seeing right now in Pennsylvania, in New York, in New Jersey, in the places where it's getting colder, where we're all starting to gather inside, an increase in the infection rates means an increase in the deaths, right? Means an increase in the burden of the hospitals. That's exactly what is going on. And now we have Omicron in the mix. Mm -hmm. It's now in a majority of states. We now have... um, the first study really coming out of South South Africa indicating that it is extremely contagious and perhaps even more alarming that it seems to be affecting kids more severely yeah. than adults. What are your thoughts on this? So Omicron, blessing and curse. Let me start with the curse part of it. The curse part of it is, of course, it's affecting children. And we and one of the worries I've always had from the beginning of this pandemic is what happens with children in the long run when they become infected with this disease? We don't know. We've known about this virus for two years. What's going to happen to those children in 20 years, in 30 years? So they're in terms of cancer, in terms of reproduction, in terms of a million other things. So that's my big worry. But I will. So so it is more contagious. It is less virulent. So it's not ultimately killing people the way that Delta did. So that's the fact that that's not happening is a blessing. It's also a blessing in some ways because more people will become infected and maybe we'll get to a place in the population where we have some kind of herd immunity, right? So there's there's 30% of the country that's not going to be vaccinated no matter what, we can do jumping jacks, we can like motivate with money, that's not gonna happen. But if they get Omicron, they're gonna get at least some kind of immunity in their bodies. And so we get closer and closer and closer to herd immunity. Those are the blessing sides. The curse sides is we don't know. We don't know what it does to children. We don't want people to come infected. There are gonna be people who die of Omicron. We have a case documented in the United Kingdom. And so the other negative side of it is, is Carol, is that 
Omicron is not the last of these variants, right? And there may be a variant down the line, although virology would argue unlikely that's going to be as transmittable and as virulent as, as Delta was. It's unlikely to happen because as viruses continue to replicate, they tend to become weaker in their impact on the body, right? So the rule is more easily transmittable, less virulent, right? So think about it. Omicron, easily transmittable, less virulent. HIV, difficult to transmit, very, 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 very. So let's let's hope that we don't get a highly virulent, highly transmittable strain. And that is the danger, though. The one thing I read was because it is so contagious and it also seems to be jumping natural immunity. In other words, people who had COVID before are they're seeing more of them become get re- right. reinfected with this. And the way I've read about variants is that the more there, the more people are infected. There's a chance that the virus then could then mutate again, Correct. and like you said, we could get more mutations. That could be more Correct. dangerous. Every single infection increases the probability of a mutation. So we become factories. All of our bodies become factories, and if there are more factories that are producing like faulty virus, the likelihood of mutation is higher. Absolutely right. That's the other negative side. Right. And the and well, and the other thing, too, is because this is so new, we really don't know. You just you just touched on it. The long term effects. I've known people who have gotten mild cases of covid, but then months later have to go see the pulmonologist because they're having problems breathing or they still have extreme fatigue or I mean, there's just a list of uh, symptoms that are lingering months out from infection. Right. The look, let's call it long COVID, right? Because that's the term that's been used uh, over the course of the pandemic. Individuals with long COVID are people who continue to have these symptoms, some of which we don't even see, Carol, I think. I don't, I, I go back to the thing I raised about children. I don't know what this, what happens to children in the long term, but the lack of smell, the lack of taste, the scarring of the lungs, all of those things. And we don't know what's happening on a cellular level. These are going to be studies that are going to, we're 20 years from now, we're going to know what the impact is. So what does that mean to our fellow Americans, to our fellow Philadelphians, to our fellow, you know, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, New Jerseyans? Don't get sick. Try to avoid getting infected, even if you've had it before or you're vaccinated. It kind of ties into what you started out earlier, though, saying we've become a little complacent. And I think when people hear that it's not particularly deadly, that they think it's not it's not serious. Well, I think there's about 30 percent of the population who don't think this disease is serious anyway. And that's just started from the very beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, for many people, it's not serious. For some people, it's completely deadly. Like we just take it for granted that people die of flu every year. We just like, you know, we just live with that. We don't talk about it, whatever. You know, I feel like this is we're now at 800,000 cases. We're going to be at a million cases. There's no doubt in my mind there's going to be a million deaths from this disease. Right. And the danger, of course, Carol, twofold. Right. Or threefold. What does happens to kids? What's the long term effects on adults? And what happens if a more virulent strain comes around and really, really starts to kill again? And, you know, touching on that, we, we've been vaccinated. We've had vaccines now for a year. The death toll, uh, you just said you expect it to exceed a million. I mean, it's around 800,000 now. That's right. more than double what it was a year ago right. before the vaccines. Right. So because 
people heard there were vaccines and those of us who knew we should be vaccinated became vaccinated and we are protected. And I want to talk about that for a second because I don't think vaccines are the simple answer to this. And I think there was an over overstatement of the vaccine. And other people were like, well, I don't need the vaccine because other people are vaccinated. And that's why we continue to see the deaths, right? So Omicron, the other blessing of Omicron is maybe if people start seeing others get really, really sick, it'll make them want to get vaccinated, more likely to get vaccinated. I think that, you know, when you have people close to you who are sick, you tend to change your behavior. But I want to say, Carol, the following also, I wish the messaging on vaccines had been different, right? I wish it had not been like the great savior. I mean, so I absolutely 100% will tell you that when I navigate spaces in New York City, where I know everybody's vaccinated, I'm less likely to wear a mask. But any other place in this country, I do not. I always wear a mask in a public space and I'm I am boosted. And I want to get to that in just just a moment. But you were talking about wearing masks and being in public places. And in fact, uh, Philadelphia is going to implement a vaccine mandate. It's going to kick in January 3rd, meaning if you want to eat out, if you want to go out for a drink or whatever in Philadelphia, you're going to have to prove that you've been fully vaccinated. Um, and you talked about vaccines, though, not being the simple answer. So I'm wondering then what is your reaction to a mandate like that? So I want to, first of all, start and stop using the word mandate. I hate that word. I think it's problematic. I think it's a requirement, right? Like you're required to like cross the street at a green light. You're required to get a mumps vaccination before you go to school, right? You're required to file your taxes every year. You're required to get a COVID vaccination before you go into a public place. I think it is absolutely a great idea. It is not the only solution though, right? So we think about multi-pronged approaches. Multi-pronged approaches mean vaccines and masks and social distancing. But if we want to have some sense of normalcy, if we want people to be able to socialize again in restaurants and in bars and clubs and what have you, we have to have this requirement. There's just there's no other solution. No one's going to go to a bar and wear a mask the whole time. Think about it. You're three margaritas in. You're wearing your mask? I doubt it. So I really want these requirements in Philadelphia, and I applaud Philadelphia for doing this because it's going to make those of us who navigate those spaces and go out to the restaurants and bars and the clubs feel a lot safer in our lives. And if you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't get to go. Very simple. I want to go back to, uh, you know, you talked about a little bit about messaging. Um, Dr. Oz is running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, and he's running ads in which he says Washington got it wrong on COVID and that they took away our freedoms. And and frankly, in the ad, he comes across as angry. Um, he's a doctor saying these things. We've certainly heard others in the medical community question vaccines and do things like promote horse pills as a cure. What kind of impact does it have when someone like Dr. Oz says things like that? What is your reaction? Somebody who's trained as a medical doctor who has no idea about governments and social compacts and policies and the way we create societies, he has zero idea about that. So that's why that very, very stupid statement is made by Dr. Oz. Nobody's rights were taken away. It has a very negative impact on the well-being of our population. And quite frankly, as a medical doctor, he should be ashamed that he's saying that because he's using political capital to try to advance his career at the expense of people's health. And to me, that is an example of somebody who is thinking only about themselves and not the well-being of the population population. And as somebody whose parents were born on the island of Gauss, which is the birthplace of Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, I say shame on you, Dr. Oz, for doing that. 
So you said vaccines, though, are not the simple answer to, you know, ending this pandemic. What else do we need to do, in in your opinion? What are are the other elements that we need to look at here? So if you said to me, Perry, every American has to be vaccinated going to school and they have to show up for vaccines every year for their booster, I might have a slightly different answer and say, oh, maybe vaccines is the answer. But that's not going to be the case. We know that. We know that schools are not requiring it right now because it's still not fully approved. That's full approval by the FDA. We know that private businesses are going to fight back. And we know that politicians like Dr. Oz are going to continue to like fight back against this possibility of a full vaccination. So we're not going to get there. So therefore, vaccines are not enough. So what do we need to do? Mandates in places that people navigate making wise decisions about who we gather with, right? In terms of uh, social navigation um, and, and continuing to distance and pushing as much as possible any entity in this country that is supported by government money to require vaccinations in their, in their workplace. That's how we get there. So I'm basically, what I'm offering to you, Carol, is that people just need to make like logical, safe decisions. And it's like either in states where they're not gonna have these mandates, these requirements, they need to wear their masks, they need to keep distance from each other, they need to be really smart on the decisions they're making. For us, we still need to be smart, but probably a little less worried about the about the distancing in the private spaces. So either we fully engage everybody in vaccination and get everybody vaccinated, or we're going to continue to live in a space where we're going to have to wear masks like California just enacted. Yeah. Uh, that's what's going to happen. All right. And people don't like that. And to me, Dr. Oz, back to the Dr. Oz comment, you don't want that to happen. Get everybody vaccinated because that will actually assure that at least we're not spreading the virus as much as we could be. But you talk about being smart and Honestly, the debate in this country, you know, depends on where you fall, your determination of what is smart and what is unnecessary. And let's just talk about masking in schools. I mean, that's been the topic of intense debate. In Pennsylvania, it's now up to individual districts to decide. Um, In New Jersey, the mask mandate for schools has survived a legal challenge. But, I mean, this is intense debate here with people saying parents should be the ones to decide. It should not be up to schools. And now, particularly in light of Omicron, should kids be required to wear masks in school? Do you think that's necessary? Does it help or is it ineffective? I have several answers to this. <laughs> let's let's just face it. Like young kids, even if they're wearing masks, going to take them off in schools. Right. So we can we can try. Right. I am a proponent of masks in schools because one recognizing that they don't work, right? The kids are going to take them off eventually. Some coverage is better than no coverage, okay? Why do I think that this is a good idea? Because we are likely to see disease continue to spread among kids who are not vaccinated, especially under fives. And by the way, only like 20% of like five to 11s are vaccinated. So like, let's go all the way to 11. So elementary school kids are gonna continue to get sick and spread the disease, bring it to their families. Okay, their families, their older people in their families hopefully are vaccinated. But again, what does the long-term damage do to them? There is no evidence whatsoever that masks create psychological problems. And quite frankly, if you don't want to vaccinate your child as many people have for decades here in the United States, then you keep your child at home and teach them there. Like you want to go to a public school, you want to go to an entity where we're, we're all paying taxes to, then yes, you have a right not to vaccinate your child. I also have a right to have my child not get sick, right? And so whose rights are be- are more important? Basically, the people who are saying that they have a right to that and that's what have their child put on their mask are putting the health of other people at risk and putting their child's supposed psychological well-being over the well-being of the other children in the classroom. 
What about, we talked a little bit about boosters. Do you think being fully vaccinated is eventually going to mean that you have your booster? Because we were talking about messaging too, and messaging on boosters has changed dramatically in just a short period of time. And let me let me make it even more complicated for you. So I had a booster in September, and now I'm wondering, do I need one in February? And nobody knows the answer to this quite yet, right? Do I right. need it every six months? Uh, no, I think what's going to happen is like the annual flu shot. I mean, the virus continues to perpetuate that we have a flu shot every year because the flu virus changes and there's going to be there needs to be new modified vaccines to deal with the new strains. That's what's going to happen here. For, let's not call it booster. Let's call it like your annual flu and COVID shot. You know, it's interesting because I hear people say, oh, but you need more than one so it doesn't work. And then I say, well, there are, are a lot of vaccines that you need, either a series and think of childhood vaccines or even uh, shingles vaccine or you get the flu shot once a year. You get the flu shot once a year. I got my shingles vaccine recently, both my shots. You know, you have to get meningitis every 10 years. You have to get pneumovac every 10 years at a certain age. Come on, people. This is like not a new concept. Let's talk about at-home tests. The Biden administration wants Mm -hmm. to make them free, but in some cases you have to pay for it first if you have private insurance and submit it. So first, I want to know how important do you think home testing is to getting a handle on this pandemic? I think it's very important if you're going to be navigating spaces where you don't know people's health, right? So I'm going to give you a story about home testing that relates to me. So my brother, who lives with MS, has just gotten his most recent infusion, his progressive MS. And, you know, the doctor said to him, now that you've had this, you can't be boosted for another couple of months. He's been my worry from the very beginning of this pandemic. So here's Christmas. And I said to him, what are we going to do? His name is Tony. Are we go- we're going to get together. I really worry about you, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yes, maybe we should. We'll go to my aunt's house. But everyone's vaccinated and boosted in that house. I spoke, I called him literally the other day on the phone and said, should we all test beforehand? So if you want to be super cautious and you want to make sure you're taking care of your health and health, then you do that. Do I think that people are going to readily take it up and do tests at home? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's the solution, quite frankly, to the problem. I think the figuring out how to get vaccinated is probably a better solution than just giving people these home tests. Do you think, so we're getting a lot of news lately on the pills, the COVID treatment pills from both Pfizer and Merck. Mm -hmm. Pfizer says its pill is 89% effective in cutting back your risk of hospitalization or death from this. They're both asking the FDA for emergency use approval. Where do they fall in this fight? And are you afraid that these pills will deter people from getting vaccinated or boosted? They're really important in this fight. Treatment's always really important, but I prefer prevention over treatment. I'd rather people not get sick than get sick. So they're a critical tool, but they should be like the second choice tool. Right. And my fear is that what was going to happen is exactly right, Carol. They're going to people are going to say, I don't need to get vaccinated. I can just go on medication. Well, we don't know that that medication is going to work for the other strains that could be potentially more virulent or you have multiple comorbidities and it's not going to work for you. We know people are in hospitals telling doctors as we speak that they are they wish they had been vaccinated because they are so, 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 so sick. So don't rely on the medication. Right. Don't get syphilis. Don't get HIV. Right. Don't prevent it. Ultimately, as an American, I also say prevention, more cost efficient than treatment. So stop burdening my government that has to take care of you because you forgot to get it. You didn't want to get a vaccination. But we've also heard stories. I mean, we've heard stories like you just mentioned. We've been hearing them 
you know, throughout the pandemic and even since in the years since the vaccines, you know, came on scene. And I wonder how many stories is it going to take? I mean, I've even heard stories of people refusing COVID treatment when when they are in the hospital dying from it. These awful stories from doctors and nurses. How many stories can we hear before it starts to really kind of get through to people? There is a theory in health, uh, public health, called the stages of change theory. And there's, uh, you try to move people, like when you try to get them to do certain behaviors like exercise regularly or take their pills every day or stop smoking or stop drinking or get vaccinated, you have to move them along this continuum of change. And most people, the people we're talking about now are are called pre-contemplative. They're not even thinking about it. It is nearly impossible to get those people to move over at this point because we have inched our way. And so no number of stories, Carol, is going to make a difference. No number of stories incremental numbers of them will eventually change their minds. But at this point, I think we're pretty saturated in how many more people are going to get vaccinated. And that leads me to the healthcare uh, workforce right now. You know, hearing really heartbreaking stories of burnout. Uh, they can't believe that we're back in this place again. Um, and a lot of them are having a hard time feeling empathetic at this point because vaccines are out there, because as you've said, there is a preventative measure that you can take. And so many of these people who are very sick and in the hospital are not vaccinated. What, where does our health care system stand right now when it comes to the workforce? Do we have enough people to fill the need? I mean, we were hurting at the beginning of this pandemic. Are we still hurting? Is it any better? Is it worse? Well, I think we're hurting always with numbers, but we're hurting or oh, have a workforce that's psychologically extremely damaged. And so we saw this pattern during the height of the AIDS epidemic. You know, shortly after medications came out, doctors who had been treating people with HIV for a decade or more just fell apart. It's such underlying trauma. And I worry about what the long-term effects are on the workforce with people continuing to see people sick. So my worry is about the well-being of our healthcare providers. We should be worried. We should be worried that we're burdening a system that's already cracking at the seam and we're unduly burdening healthcare providers who should now have been come out of this, but are continuing to have to do this and are going to, in their whole lives, live with the trauma that they've seen. And then that's going to create a shortage for us. And that's going to create an impact on our all of our well-being. So it is a concern. The one thing that I've noticed, it has changed throughout this pandemic, but very slowly, and that's data collection. You know, particularly in the beginning, it was really difficult to get a handle on what was going on. CDC has gotten better now. If you look at their website, there's more, I guess, sophisticated data available. Johns Hopkins has done a tremendous job you know, of data collection. They turned out to be kind of one of the leaders in this that, that many journalists, as well as private citizens, have turned to. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, it, we just seemed woefully unprepared for this when it came to data collection. How important is data collection? And do you think this has hurt our response? Has it hurt public policy? And have we made enough headway to be prepared for the next time a pandemic hits? Surveillance is a cornerstone of public health. (laughs) So, you know, 
what we unfortunately what happened is that we had an infrastructure, a public health infrastructure over the last 20 years that had been gutted. And so both locally and in states and in, on the federal government level, you know, the CDC, nobody was particularly prepared because we had gutted the systems. Right. So we we have the tools. Surveillance is something we've been doing in this country for a very long time. Um, but we gutted it over the last 20 years. And as a result, we were not prepared. What you're seeing now is an infusion of money back into public health entities and surveillance is increasing again. Data matters. But does it matter to everyone, Carol? It matters to me you we're making decisions based on science does it matter to that 30 percent who are vaccinated not so much but it does help policymakers hopefully i'm gonna i'm gonna risk it here hopefully there are rational policymakers in washington and in our states who are making decisions based on the data and that for that reason alone good data matter well it informs it informs our decisions i mean if we're paying attention journalists or public health officials or not i mean Frankly, it's right now we're trying to present information to help people stay safe and to help people understand where we are in the pandemic. So, you know, as a journalist, it's been a bit of a frustration. It's certainly gotten better. But when we convey that message to try to at least counteract a lot of the misinformation that's out there, you're right. Some people just aren't aren't going to listen. But for the people who are, it is so important to be able to get accurate information out there. Yeah, no, look, I want data. I want I want somebody to tell me if I should have a booster in February. I want that information like right now. <laughs> um, and you're right. <clears throat> I think that information is empowering. It provides us with decision making, you know, for those of us who want to make decisions, you know, and frankly, it also identifies where the hot spots are and where we need to be putting our efforts, right? Because every state is not equal. Every city is not equal in its, in its, in its management of this disease. And knowing where the outbreaks continue to be and where the disease continues to be means that the federal government, the state governments can appropriate their funds in a way that's more tailored to the particular issues at hand. Yeah, more precise. I mean, I read something that said, you know, particularly in more rural areas, but I would even say in urban areas, when you have pockets of cities, that if they can trace who's gotten vaccines or who needs vaccines or where they need to do this outreach in a much more, like you said, precise way to help people, you know, be safe and just to kind of get a better handle on it. Right. No. And I and to make informed decisions. You know, here's what's interesting to me about human beings who are so irrational. The problem is that we always assume human beings are rational, but let's face it, they're not. <laughs> How many of us go on Waze or Google Maps or stuff like that to figure out what the best time is to leave so not get stuck in traffic? We're using data at that point. We're using data at that point. That's just the same thing. But we're not going to use data to make decisions about whether we should be vaccinated. Like You're like using it to drive, dude. Like, come on. It's the same exact thing here. So, you know, I you know what I think we really stink at? most academics and most public health entities is like expressing these ideas to people in this real way. Like I just did for you right now. And I think we keep it at this 40,000 foot level. That's like this know-it-all academics and know-it-all scientists and know-it-all doctors. And we got to meet people where they are. And it's my goal as a public health team to make sure the students that we're preparing here have those tools to speak to people in an everyday life, because that's how they're going to make an impact. We got to stop this like them and us thing, not working. No. And on that note, do you think we're any more prepared for the next pandemic today than we were when COVID-19 hit? 
we're getting we're getting there. I mean, I think, look, it depends what happens like on the federal government level over the course of the next few years. I think the Biden administration are putting money back into infrastructure on public health. I've certainly seen it. We know that students are coming into public health in very large numbers, which is excellent. I think that all of us are thinking about how we prepare our students and the curriculum moving forward. But if the infrastructure is gutted again under another administration that doesn't believe in public health, no, we're not gonna be prepared at all. And the next one is moments away the next pandemic. You know, I say to people, Carol, it's not 1918. People didn't travel all over the world on planes and boats and go to London for the weekend, you know, that I used to do as a young man in the 80s, right? That wasn't happening in 1918. It's happening now. And that's why global pandemics are going to happen with increased frequency. But I think what, what we also have is the technology. What yeah. we have is the ability to get this detailed information in pretty much real time and to act on it. And that's the crazy part is that it's this dual, yes, pandemic spread more easily because we're much more mobile, but we also have the capability of tracing it and acting on it much faster, not to mention medical advancements. And yet. Yes. But we also have people who don't act logically. And that's the Achilles heel here. Right. And so we just assume that when we give people when we tell people, oh, you shouldn't smoke, it's bad for you, that they're going to do it. Or you should wear a seatbelt every time, which, by the way, has resulted in much less you know, fatalities that way that people are going to do it. But not everybody does that. And so we've got to also think about another piece, Carol, which I think is really important here that often gets lost. And I have been pushing this as somebody who believes in education. We've got to do a better job educating our children. It can't just be about reading and math, guys. It's got to be about social studies. It's got to be about science. Kids are coming up who have no idea what a virus is, no idea what a bacteria is. And so unless we like infuse that kind of knowledge like they did in the, I don't know, in the 60s, right, when, when the whole like space thing was going on, they're not, we're going to have a generation that's illiterate. We have an illiterate American public that deal, uh, in regard to science and an illiterate public uh, population about government. We have freaking senators who can't tell you the three branches of government, right? So that's the other piece here that I want to see Biden-Harris really focus on. And I have great hopes that Jill Biden will get us to put that emphasis in the schools. And the education. Yeah, yeah. So we're almost at the end of 2021. It's been two years since this pandemic began. So as we get ready for 2022, Dr. Halkidis, I want to ask you to think back on the last year and if you could tell us what your biggest reflections are. That science works, that, we, that science is powerful, that we, are, we have an amazing American scientific infrastructure that's able to put out a vaccine and treatments really, really quickly, that when the money is there and when the infrastructure is there, science is extremely powerful. My other reflection is, and I've reflected this in the work we're doing here at the school, is, which is we haven't done a really good job at messaging and, con and doing health education. And we actually stink at that, quite frankly. Um, and we have to think about innovative, modern ways to get to people because the ways of the past are not the ways of the future. And so how do we use technology? How do we use Instagram? How do we use Facebook? How do we use all of those things, which are not going away, friends, to be able to do that kind of messaging in a, in a smart art way. And health communications and the way we communicate and how we communicate and how we educate is where we have just done a really not so great job. So we get a D on that maybe an F, I don't know. And we get like an A minus on like the science piece, right? And last but not least, 
we've done a really bad job at trying to heal our wounds and the wounds of politics and of health and and what have you and i you know give us a very bad grade on that but i have hope that if we can continue to have a generation of people who are educated properly who are actually believe in science the future is hopeful and look carol i was a young man who lived through the aids epidemic in the 80s i've got i my natural inclination in life is hopeful right so i'm hoping that this is a wake up call to us as a country dr halkitas on that note i want to say thank you very much for joining us today thank you carol it's been a pleasure this has been Facts Over Fear, a KYW News Radio in-depth special presented by Independence Blue Cross. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie. Thanks for listening.